You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. John chapter 19, as you're doing that, I wanted to show that video this morning because I feel like it uh, is helpful for us to kind of think through the perspective of what it looks like to see ourselves in this passage, right? We get this hypothetical perspective from Barabbas as he's looking on uh, and some of the comments that he might have made as he maybe processes through and realizes that that Jesus is is functioning practically very much so in his place by going to the cross. But then even for us to be able to see that um, as we read this passage, as we look at this passage today, that the crucifixion is an act by Jesus whereby he takes on himself what we deserve, um, that we're the sinners, we're the rebels, uh, we're the, the enemies of God. And it's because of our actions that we're separated from God. And, and Jesus steps in to atone for that. Jesus steps in to, to go to the cross so that we can move from being called enemies to being called beloved. And um, so I'm super thankful for this passage. I'm thankful for uh, men like the Apostle John who were uh, capable to see this firsthand and record firsthand experience for us to look at over 2,000 years um, later. Uh, John chapter 19, we started looking at this passage last week. Uh, We saw the first 16 verses. Um, We said last week that while humans enjoy delegated authority, supreme authority lies in heaven, giving us reason to trust God and to do right when we see human authorities doing evil because we believe God will use those evil actions for his purposes. So we talked a little bit about the kingship of Jesus last week. Uh, We saw um, Pilate's perceived authority by him last week as well, but then we saw how that kind of breaks down when you look at it, that ultimately Jesus is in control of the situation. Um, He shows that by his silence uh, when he chooses not to speak to Pilate. We also see that Pilate is crippled by fear of man in that he won't lead in the ways that he knows he should, right? Like he sees Jesus's innocence and yet he beats him, uh, scourges him, and then ultimately declares him uh, to be uh, pushed towards crucifixion, even though all along, Pilate is saying, I believe that he's innocent, right? And so we said last week that we want to believe that Jesus is the son of God who made himself man, that he is the innocent son of God, and he is the submitted son of God, right? That the passage is very clear to highlight the innocence of Jesus, that nobody can find him guilty of anything. And yet Jesus remains submissive to his father and the plan that they put in place to save mankind. We talked about remembering that Jesus is king and all other authority is delegated authority right? We appreciate the delegated authority that God puts into place to to help serve us, but ultimately it's delegated authority. There is no human authority that operates independently of God. And so we talked about delegated power is to be used, but it's not absolute power, Uh, that our president, our governor, uh, other national leaders, uh, kings and authorities, they do not have absolute power. It is submitted to God. And then we also talked about God's law not being a contradictory law right? That the Pharisees try to use the law against Jesus and say that Jesus should be crucified for claiming to be God. And we've said all along that they never pause and stop to ask if his claims are true. They just get defensive because he makes the claims. And so instead of seeing that his claims are true, making him the fulfillment of the law, they see him at odds with the law and want him crucified. And then we said, when you know what is right, do it no matter the cost. Uh, Do it even if your loyalty is questioned. Do it even if your position is threatened. And Pilate fails to do that, right? He's he's questioned by the people. His loyalty is questioned towards Caesar, and so it leads him to declare crucifixion on Jesus. He's fearful of losing his position of power. 
that it might be replaced if his loyalty is, is shown to be not towards Caesar. And so he, he chooses not to do what's right um, because he feels like it's too costly to do what is right. And so application-wise, last week I told you to rejoice over your salvation. Praise God that you're saved from the sin virus, right? We're, we're living in a day and age right now where <clears throat> we're worried about being sick from the coronavirus, but ultimately we've been set free from something far greater than that virus, um, that, that we have been set free from our sin, and so we can rejoice over that. We can pray for our delegated authorities. Uh, keep trusting in the true king, though, right? So we pray for our president, pray for our governor, pray for the task forces that have been put in place to help guide us through this, but ultimately we trust that the true king is still on the throne. Um, and then we talked about doing what's right, uh, <clears throat> listening to our delegated authorities right now, really trying to do what it is they're asking us to do to help do good towards others. And so I would encourage you um, to keep doing that as well. <clears throat> Let's look at John chapter 19 now, verse 17. John chapter 19, verse 17. And we get into the crucifixion of Jesus today. And it says, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, <clears throat> let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to its mouth, to, to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Our summary sentence for today. The cross is God's declaration that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of all kinds in fulfillment of promises made long ago. And now that he has finished that work, he calls us to respond in faith and obedience to him. The cross is God's declaration that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of all kinds in fulfillment of promises made long ago. And now that he has finished that work, he calls us to respond in faith and obedience to him. For our kids, we should believe in Jesus who died on the cross like the Bible promised. What we see in this passage here is God declaring some things, right? He's declaring some things about Jesus, that he is king and that he is a savior of sinners. Now, we said back when we first started our study that 
that John leaves out some things in his gospel because the other three gospels had already been written, right? And he expects there to be uh, some familiarity with, um, with those other accounts, right? So even as we read through this, some of you are probably sitting at home thinking of other things that you know happen on the cross, right? Like Jesus says other things. He has a full conversation with the two thieves that are on the cross. Uh, there's heckling that takes place from the crowd um, towards Jesus. There's the confession that, that he desires for God to forgive them for they don't, they don't know what they're doing. So a lot of different things that happen on the cross. John chooses not to mention everything because, again, he's choosing to mention specific things for a specific purpose that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, right? Um, but he does expect there to be familiarity with some of those other things. But Jesus is, is being declared by God to be this Savior of sinners, right? He's forgiving people for their sins. He's, he's welcoming people into paradise with them in, in a few moments. Uh, so the cross is God's declaration that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of all kinds. And we see in this passage how John draws attention to the fact that this is exactly how Scripture said it would happen, too. That it's a fulfillment of promises made long ago. Um, and, and we're going to see that the work is now finished. Jesus declares it to be finished. And we're going to see passages that let us know what we're to do in light of that finished work now. Uh, what, what is it that we're called to do? We're called to respond in faith and obedience to him. By way of introduction, I think as we read this passage, it should stand out to us that, that Jesus carried um, his, his tool of death uh, to the place where he would be crucified, right? He's carrying the cross beam, most likely of the cross, uh, which would have weighed upwards of 100 pounds. Um, and it mirrors to me, kind of going back to our study of Genesis, Isaac carrying his own wood when he was supposed to be the sacrifice as well, right? So we see Abraham and Isaac journeying up the mountain. Isaac is carrying that wood, asking Abraham, where's the, where's the sacrifice? What, what, what's going to happen here? And, and Abraham is very clear to say, God's going to provide the sacrifice, right? And so we see a, an initial picture of the gospel that substitutionary atonement take place when Isaac is on the altar and, and God provides the animal to, to stand in Isaac's place, right? Well, well, that doesn't happen with Jesus. Jesus carries the wood to, to Golgotha. Um, he's put on the cross, and there is no other substitution to be made. He is the substitution, right? He is the, the, the perfect lamb that stands in Isaac's place, stands in Abraham's place, David's place, and our place, right? Um, and so we see that kind of being mirrored in this passage. We also see uh, the aspect of Jesus's garment, not being uh, terrible uh, because it's, it's sewn without the seams, right? And it kind of mirrors the priest's garment that we see in Exodus chapter 28, verses 31 through 32, that their garment was such where it could not be torn, right? And we know that Jesus is our better priest. Um, it's important, again, for us to see in this passage, not so much the horror of crucifixion, because there's two other people that are being crucified right there with Jesus, Right? The horror of this passage is that Jesus doesn't deserve it. Um, the, the horror is not specifically what is happening to Jesus. It's far more about what, what he doesn't deserve that's being, that's being done to him, right? Um, that, it, that it's ourselves that should be serving in that place. We should be bearing uh, God's wrath. We should be bearing the punishment for our sin, and yet Jesus steps in um, and does that for us. I want to give you four points this morning, um, and I know we're a little behind on time just due to the technical difficulties, so... Um, we'll try to move through this at an appropriate speed. 
Um, but let's start with number one. Remember the cross is for all nations and the worst sinners. Remember the cross is for all nations and the worst sinners. <clears throat> and I think we have to remind ourselves of this regularly, right? Um, that it can be easy to compartmentalize our faith to the United States, to compartmentalize our faith to the people that we so often interact with and, and to potentially feel like others are excluded from the gospel. We would never verbalize that per se, uh, but when we see things happening around the globe, for us to have a, a, a heart for the nations, because I believe that, that Jesus declares his heart even through this passage, uh, that he's a savior, he's a king for all nations, not just the Jewish people. Um, and that he's here to save the worst sinners. And, and while John, again, doesn't mention the conversation between the two thieves, he is very clear to mention that Jesus is crucified between these two thieves. Um, and we know from the other accounts, the conversations that take place, right? And so here's an individual who absolutely deserved crucifixion, much like Barabbas. Um, and he turns to Christ in faith and Jesus welcomes him. Right. So we'll talk more about that for our kids. Jesus died for sinners all over the world, right? All over the world, not just in our context, but globally, we have a God who's very concerned about uh, men and women all over the world. In your notes, number one, the cross declared that Jesus is the king for everyone. He's the king for everyone, right? We see that in the way that, um, Pilate displays who Jesus is. So it was customary for them when they had a convicted criminal crucified to display a description of who this individual was, right? And so Pilate chooses to declare Jesus as the king of the Jews, but he does so in, in multiple languages, right? It says it's written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And so you have a language that was uh, familiar to the Jews, uh, the Latin language being a language that was very familiar to the Roman soldiers, and then the Greek language being kind of the common language of that time. And so you even see intentionality by Pilate here to make sure that anybody and everybody that is present at the crucifixion knows what is being said about Jesus, right? But the wordage that he chooses to use is not so much what Jesus says himself. It's stated more so as a fact, Right. Um, and it enrages the Jews because of its message, right? Like, it, it really does frustrate them. And the passage says that, um, that, they, that they argued about it with Pilate. It says they said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And the tense that's used in the Greek here uh, implies that they repeatedly asked him for this, right? They are repeatedly asking Pilate to take this sign down and to change it and to fix it. And what does Pilate say? What I've written, I've written, right? His sign declares to all who Jesus truly is. He is this suffering king, a suffering king. And what, what, I, what I find so uh, cool about this passage with, with what's happening here is that Jesus is still in control while his hands are, are, are uh, nailed to a cross, his feet are attached to the cross. He's still in control in that he's controlling even the sign that's placed above him, right? He is making sure that the clearest message possible goes forth in the midst of his suffering. And so you've got Pilate being used as an instrument of God <coughs> to further this message, which is a great reminder to us that, that God can use unbelievers to further his message too, right? And so 
Pilate, kind of unbeknownst to him, is being used as a tool to declare who Jesus is to a lost world, he himself being lost as well. The Jews here at the end of Christ's life are, are frustrated. And, and if you think back, um, all through Jesus's life, people have been trying to stop him from his claim towards kingship, right? You go all the way back into Matthew chapter two, where the wise men show up uh, after his birth and, and they tell Herod, hey, we're looking for the new king of the Jews. And Herod kind of is like, what? I'm the king of the Jews. I mean, he goes on this killing rampage where he <clears throat> tries to put it into um, to Christ being able to grow up and to rule and to reign, right? And so Jesus begins his life as a hunted king. Um, he dies as a, as a hated king in a lot of ways, as a rejected king uh, by the Jewish people. But the sign indicates on his cross who he truly is. And then we find in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, that he's returning as a king too. Um, so he was born as the king, right? And, and they tried to stop him. And then he dies as a king and that he will return as a king. And it's when he returns as a king in Revelation chapter 19, you'll remember from our Revelation study, he comes to rule and to reign and to put an end to all sinners, right? He puts an end to all the injustice. Um, and so we look forward to that. We take great comfort in the fact that Jesus is coming again as a ruling king. Not only is the cross declaring that Jesus is the king for everyone, number two, the cross declares that Jesus can be the king for anyone. So number one, you have kind of a big picture perspective that Jesus is the king for everyone, right? All nations can come to him. But number two, I wanted to draw our attention to the more specific piece that he can be the king for anyone. And that's the picture I think that we see with the two thieves hanging next to Jesus, um, that Jesus is willing to save even the worst sinners in their final moments. I think the thief on the cross um, is some of the most intentional planning by God when it comes to salvation uh, in that it, it gives us such great knowledge about how the gospel works, right? That the gospel works in such a way where you put your faith in Jesus and you cross from death to life immediately. You go from darkness to light immediately, regardless of any good works that come after salvation, right? Like, like you are transferred. Now, I fully believe that if the thief had lived through the cross, had somehow been taken down, that his life would have looked drastically different moving forward, right? Because if he's truly passed from darkness to light, truly passed from death to life, his life would show it, right? He would have began to produce fruit, but he doesn't get a chance to do that. Right? He dies in the next few moments after confessing faith. But it's a strong reminder to us that good works do not save us lest any man should boast. Right, And so the thief has zero to boast in. Right, Zero to boast in. He's lived his life. His, his life is, is down to the final moments, the final seconds and minutes even. And he turns and puts faith in Jesus. And, and Jesus says, you're going to be with me in paradise today. Right? And so it's a reminder to us that Jesus can save the worst sinners in their final moments with nothing else having to be done by them, right? No baptism, no Lord's Supper, no church attendance, no giving, no service projects, right? It's, it's him, the thief, simply recognizing you are who you say you are, and you don't deserve to be up here, right? I deserve to be up here. You don't deserve to be up here. And Jesus looks at him in that expression of faith and says, you're going to be with me in paradise today. So, 
I want to I encourage you to remember the truth that we see in this passage. The cross is for all nations, and it's for the worst sinners. And, and that gives us kind of our marching orders, even when it comes to sharing the gospel, right? That we're to share the gospel with all nations. It's why we labor to give our money so that others can go overseas, right? I'm so thankful that um, Stephen and Jennifer can be with us this morning listening in because they're not here with their family right now in a time where I know they would love to be close to the ones they love the most, right? And yet they are overseas because Jesus came to, to save all nations, right? It's a good reminder to us that those who um, are, are some of the worst sinners that we can imagine, they still, they still deserve the gospel and, and God can still save them, right? And so even those that, that we continue to pray for, uh, close family members and friends that, that have been lost for, for so long and we've prayed for them for so long, um, we can take great comfort in that even in their final moments, they can be saved, that the gospel has that type of working power. So remember, crosses for all nations and the worst sinners. Number two, we want to trust in Jesus more because the cross fulfills Scripture. Trust in Jesus more <clears throat> because the cross fulfills Scripture. For our kids, Jesus died like the Bible promised. Jesus died like the Bible promised. What we see in this passage is Jesus further proving that he's the Messiah by fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. When I say trust in Jesus more, obviously that's not saying like be saved more than you currently are. But we talked about the fact that this gospel written by John so that we'll believe that Jesus is the son of God is not just for lost people, right? That it is for believers that we grow in our faith we grow in our belief, even to the point where we see the disciples. Multiple times, Jesus is doing things, and it says that the disciples believed. They believed again, or they believed more. They believed deeper. <clears throat> and so I want you to see that here in the, in the narrative of the, of the crucifixion, that we can trust in Jesus more because the cross fulfills Scripture. The faith that we profess, it's an informed faith. Right? It's an informed faith by the word of God, God's revelation to us. He tells us how the crucifixion will happen. He gives us reasons or he gives us evidence to believe. Paul noted this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul audibly, verbally passing the gospel down to others says in verse 3, For I delivered to you. As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, right? What's Paul highlighting there? He's saying, look, what, what's really important, right? Well, what I've got to pass on to you is that Jesus died. And he didn't just die like any other man. He died specifically for men, for women, for children, right? He died for our sins, but he takes it another step further. He says, not only did Jesus die, not only did he die for your sins, he died in accordance to the scriptures. He died just like the scripture said that he was going to, right? Just like he said he was going to, right? He tells his disciples he's going to die by crucifixion in his earthly life. But even long ago, promises made long ago, Jesus is telling us 
through his written word how the crucifixion will play out. Our faith is a, an informed faith. It's a faith based on reason and evidence. It's not, it's not something that we just blindly trust in. But there's great evidence for why we, why we believe what we believe. Because the way things unfolded, they unfolded in accordance with the scriptures. Let's see three prophecies that are, that are revealed to us here. Two of them John draws attention to. One that is here, even without John drawing attention to it. The first is the prophecy of the thieves. The prophecy of the thieves in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Right? It tells us in this passage that is attributed to being uh, a messianic prophecy about Jesus all through it, talking about the suffering that Jesus would endure, that in his death, while he's bearing the sin of many and making intercession for the transgressors, right? He's, he's telling him, uh, he's telling, he's asking his father in the other gospels, don't hold this against them, right? Like they don't know what they're doing. But it also talks about him being numbered with the transgressors. So the fact that John points out that Jesus was crucified, not by himself, not in isolation, but he was crucified along common men. He was crucified amongst transgressors. He was crucified amongst those who deserve to be there. But even the placement of how Jesus is crucified, he is seen as the worst of the bunch. He's placed there in the middle. Some have even speculated that this is perhaps uh, Barabbas's band of men and that Jesus has stepped in now and is taking the place of Barabbas. But these other two men may have been cohorts of Barabbas. Um, <clears throat> these thieves, these robbers that we know Barabbas was guilty of as well, they may have all been sentenced to crucifixion this day. And Barabbas is spared in the final moments, right? Final moments, Jesus says, or, the, or, the, or Pilate says, who do you want, Jesus or Barabbas? We want Barabbas, crucify Jesus. <clears throat> to know that these other two potentially were, were friends of Barabbas, cohorts of Barabbas. Um, we certainly know they were transgressors. We certainly know they deserve to be up there. We certainly know that nobody is arguing for their innocence. Uh, they themselves aren't really arguing for their innocence, right? Um, and so we see Jesus here being numbered amongst the transgressors, even labeled as maybe the worst of the bunch based on his placement. Um, but it was predicted in the Old Testament that this would be the case, that in his death, he would be numbered this way with transgressors. And I think John is very intentional to point out the fact that, hey, that happened, right? Just as in accordance with the scriptures said it would. Uh, the second prophecy that we see in this passage comes with the prophecy of the garment. Jesus is being crucified here. He's been led to his crucifixion. He's been staked <clears throat> and hung with these other two men. The argument ensues about whether or not the sign should stay in place or not. Pilate chooses to keep it there. I mean, it says in verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be, right? So it's traditional for uh, the Jewish people to, to have maybe five uh, elements of garment with them. <clears throat> um, we certainly know that, that, that Jesus has all of them with him when, he, when he's taken to be crucified. And, and it was common practice when you crucified for the, uh, the soldiers to be able to divide the spoil of the person being crucified. And so that's what they're doing. 
You've got these four soldiers here that have divided up his garments, uh, one for each of them, but there's one that's extra. And so who gets the extra, right? And so they decide to, to cast lots. They decide to gamble to see who will benefit the most and who will be able to take his garments. Imagine Jesus watching this scene in front of him, right? The few belongings that he has being fought over by his own creation, right? Um, but the, the reason this is included here, the reason that it takes place is to fulfill Old Testament prophecy found in Psalm chapter 22. So back in Psalm, this is a, uh, a writing by David during a time when he was afflicted. Um, and and as, as you know, that there's a lot in the Old Testament that, that is true about David that gets projected into the New Testament uh, onto Christ. One, because David is a, uh, a figure who, who points us to Jesus, right? Jesus is the better David, um, the better king. Um, and in Psalm chapter 22, we have another one of those passages uh, where some things are happening to David, but we, we project them into the future. That This was something they expected um, to, be, to be happening to the Messiah. And it says, um, verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Right? And this isn't me projecting this onto Jesus because I think it sounds cool. This is John saying, hey, this is in fulfillment of Scripture. This is happening, and I'm, I'm, I'm writing about this, right? Because this seems like maybe an irrelevant detail, something that doesn't have to be mentioned. And yet John says, I want this mentioned, right? I, I want you to remember this because this was to fulfill the Scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Why did they do these things? To fulfill scripture. And they have no idea that they're doing that. They have no idea that they're being used by God to fulfill scripture, to validate who Jesus is. Man, like I, I want us to read this today. I want us to see Jesus on the cross because of our sin. And I want us to be able to walk away from this, believing in this Jesus more because he fulfills scripture with his death, right? It's playing out exactly how God intended for it to play out. This is not an accident, right? John records these actions and points us to the prophecy to strengthen our faith. And then number three, the prophecy of the drink. The prophecy of the drink. Jesus gets thirsty in the midst of his crucifixion. So going back to John chapter 19, we'll come back to the women here that are mentioned at the foot of the cross in just a second. But it says, in verse 28, um, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. This comes from Psalm chapter 69, verses 19 through 21. Psalm chapter 19, or Psalm chapter 69, verse 19. And I want to read it to you directly because I don't want you to, to miss the importance of this, that this is in accordance with the scriptures. Psalm 69, verse 19. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. A couple of things that are happening here. One, the thirst reminds us that Jesus is indwelling a true human body. This is a true human body here, right? Um, this is not him posing as a man. This is him coming as a man. This is him taking on the form of a servant, 
right? We've said that Jesus is always God and will always be God, but he became a man and will now always be man. And this is proof that he is a human. This is proof that he has taken on humanity. He thirsts. And it's a reminder to us that he's, he's a true human because he thirsts in this setting. It fulfills scripture, right? That, that's why it's included here because it fulfills scripture. But I wonder just the way that John writes, he takes this drink, I thirst. He wants something to, to quench that thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it to its mouth. And then when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It is finished. I can't help but think that, that he wants that so that he can project as clearly and as loudly as he can those final words before he dies, right? He's parched. He's, he's maybe coughing. He, he can't talk, right? And, and, and here's a chance for him to declare one of the most important phrases in Scripture. And so I think he takes that, that human need, seeks to meet that human need, right? Doesn't supernaturally fix it. Shows that he's a human, takes that drink, and then declares to us, it is finished. And we'll come back to what he means by that here in just a second. Number three, <clears throat> embrace the responsibilities the cross gives to you. Embrace the responsibilities the cross gives to you. So we saw, remember the cross is for all nations and the worst sinners. He came to save everybody, and he came to save the worst of everybody, right? Trust in Jesus more because the cross fulfills scripture. It's in accordance with the scriptures. He dies exactly how he's supposed to, according to the plan of God. And then there's the responsibilities that we have in light of the cross. And we need to embrace these responsibilities. Back here in John chapter 19, there's four soldiers that are gambling for the things of Jesus. But there are four women who are standing here as well. We're told that it's Jesus's mother, Mary. His mother's sister, most likely Salome, who will show up in the resurrection account. Uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, whose uh, name is real similar to the name mentioned uh, about the two who are on the road to Emmaus. And so some commentators believe that, that it was Mary and her husband, uh, Cleopas or Clopas, who, was, uh, who encountered Jesus on their seven-mile trek to uh, Emmaus. And then Mary Magdalene is here, right? It says, when Jesus saw his mother... And the disciples whom he loved, the disciple whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. All right. So number one here, we see John is tasked to care for Mary. That's specific to John, right? A specific responsibility given to John. What it does help us to see is that Jesus is a great model of what it looks like to put the needs of others above your own needs, even in your worst suffering, Right. Jesus is about to die, and yet he's thinking more about others than himself even, right? He's, he's looking at his mother and knows that she needs to be cared for. And so he asked John to, to act as her son. Joseph, most likely long gone, probably has already died at this point. And so John becomes the caretaker of Jesus's mother. Um, but it's a model for us about looking to the needs of others above our own needs, even when we have great needs, right? But number two, <clears throat> unbelievers are urged to repent and believe that's a responsibility given to us by the cross, right? John's task is to take care of Mary. The rest of us have a responsibility to respond by repenting and believing. We see this in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches his great message on the day of Pentecost. He walks through the crucifixion account, walks through uh, the culpability applied to those who crucified him, 
And in verse 37, it says, now when they heard this, well, let me start in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? <clears throat> right? The question is, okay, what do we do in light of this? And, and remember, this is, this, is, this is really recent to the crucifixion, right? So what do we do in light of the fact that Jesus died on this cross? What's the response? But what are we supposed to do with this? Peter gives them their response. He says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you, your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Unbelievers are urged to repent and believe. And so <clears throat> I know we got a lot of people listening right now. Let me just remind you, if, if you're not a believer, there is coming a day where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, right? All nations, the worst sinners, will be brought to their knees one day. It's our obligation to do that now, right? To, to turn in faith now before that great day of judgment when, when we won't have a choice right? Turn to God in faith now. Believe Jesus. Believe this Jesus who died on the cross. Believe that he fulfilled prophecy. Believe that he can save you no matter what sins you've committed. Number three, Christians are challenged to die to self. Once we repent and believe, we're now pictured as individuals who are to pick up our own cross. <clears throat> a, a, a spiritual type cross, a a um, dying to self on a daily basis where we yield ourselves to God in obedience. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me encourage you to write down Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 and 27. Matthew 16, 24 through 27. And then Luke chapter 14, verses 27 through 33. <clears throat> Luke chapter 14, verses 27 through 33. Both these passages, Jesus talks to his disciples before the crucifixion and talks to them about having to take up their cross, having to be crucified with him, um, that they can't truly be his disciple unless they're willing to uh, embrace that type of life. Embrace the responsibilities the cross gives to you. Number four, say goodbye to everything finished on the cross. Say goodbye to everything finished on the cross. His death institutes the spiritual effects of his kingdom. <clears throat> We're not saying goodbye to Jesus, right? We're saying goodbye to everything that he finished on the cross. And it's the perfect tense in the Greek, so it really means when he says it is finished, it is finished, and it will always be finished. It will never be unfinished again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, what specifically is finished? Verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? He took our sin so that we could take his righteousness, and it has been finished. We can't earn salvation. We can't keep it. We can't maintain it. 
It all rests in Jesus. His work, verse, chapter 17, verse 4, that God gave him has been finished. His role as the lamb, John the Baptist declared him to be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in John 1, 29. <clears throat> he has completed that role, right? He now stands in heaven, as we saw in Revelation, as the, the slaughtered lamb who is risen, right? Animal sacrifices have been finished. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 and 27, right? He is offered once and for all a sacrifice that atones for our sins. The justice of God has been satisfied. The sinless record of his life has been preserved. But let me give you four quick things that we've been set free from. Number one, we are set free from the law. It is finished. We've been set free from the law. Romans chapter eight, verse two. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. <clears throat> Romans chapter six, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. <clears throat> we are set free from the law. All right? Number two, we are set free from sin. We're set free from sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're set free from the law. We're set free from sin. Number three, we're set free from condemnation. Romans chapter eight, verse one says, there is no more condemnation, right? So not only are we free from the law and our inability to keep it, no, no, uh, <clears throat> not also, or also we are set free from sin. So not only the law, but also sin. So now we don't have to yield ourselves to sin, right? We can find victory over sin through the Holy Spirit. But we're not condemned for all the previous sins that we've done, and we're certainly not going to be condemned for future sins that we commit because there is no condemnation according to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. We've been set free from it. Christ took our condemnation for us. And then number four, we are set free from death and Satan. We are set free from death and Satan. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. <clears throat> Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, right, took on the human body, partook of the same things, including thirst, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What an encouraging word for us today. When we continue to, to watch the news and, and see the diagnosed cases and, and see those who have who have died from this disease. I read a story yesterday about a, a coach um, from a Christian school that we played last year. He was on our campus, on our football field, right? Died this week of the coronavirus, of COVID-19. We don't have to fear it. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear what comes after death. We've been set free from that. Satan has no hold on us. Death has no hold on us. He took human form. He died on the cross so that we could be set free from those things. We say goodbye to these things. We say goodbye to the law and sin and condemnation and death and Satan, right? It is finished is what Jesus declares. I'm going to throw it back to Tyson. We're going to watch one more video, and then I'm going to give you a couple application points to leave you with this morning.
need not say goodbye. The people will shout my name. Pilate will tell them there's nothing I've done to deserve this, but they will refuse. Pilate will stay me beside Barabbas, a murderer, and they will choose him over me. Pilate will appeal to the priests, insist on simply whipping me to appease their fury, but they will shout it louder, crucify, crucify. But still, you need not say goodbye. My hands will be tied to a post. The sound of the whip will ring in your ears and in your chest. The soldiers will peel the skin off my back. A ring of thorny branches will be pressed into my scalp until the blood runs into my eyes. Oh, Belissa, you need not say goodbye. I will carry that cross. I will go to the place of the skull, and there they will drive the iron stakes between the bones in my wrist with a hammer that will nail my feet into the tree. I will be raised up. The world waits for me to die. Nevertheless, you need not say goodbye. Between two thieves I will hang. You may hear me speaking to my father. Father, you may hear me ask him, why, child, you need not say goodbye. What you won't see, what you won't hear, what you won't know until all of this is done, is that in that moment, I was paying the penalty of your wrongdoing. Every wrongdoing, every mistake, every act of envy, every word of hatred, every moment of violence and greed and spite, every selfish desire, every lustful thought, every moment of weakness and weariness, all the failures of human history will be in my hands and on my head. On that cross, I will suffer the wrath that was destined for you. Every guilty verdict fallen on me. Your punishment will be paid for in my blood, and it will be enough. I will die on your cross. I will let out a final sigh. Know that I have loved you, and you need not say goodbye. But if you must, if you absolutely must say the word goodbye, then say it like this. Goodbye fear. Goodbye sorrow. Goodbye rejection. Goodbye shame. Say it like this. Guilt. Goodbye condemnation. Goodbye all the regrets of the past. Look up at the cross and speak the words. Goodbye addiction. Goodbye chains. Goodbye hopelessness. Right here in this place, say it aloud. Goodbye captivity. Alone freedom. Goodbye loneliness. Alone belonging. Goodbye defeat. Alone victory. 
This is the end of the curse. This is the demise of the surgery. This is all debts paid. This is, it is finished. Goodbye all the powers of hell. Goodbye darkness. Goodbye dread. Goodbye every sin. Go ahead and say it. Goodbye death. So we say goodbye to those things, right? Because it's finished. Um, it, it's finished. It, it's finished once and for all, and it remains finished. Um, and so we can be grateful and thankful for that um, this morning. Last thing that I want to I want to give you and close with this, um, as far as an application, and it's really application and family worship questions all combined into one this week. So um, what I want to challenge you to do is I want you to reflect on First John chapter one and two this week. So I want you to go and. I know you're going to be getting ready for um, D groups, but I want you to find some time together as a family, even to look at first John chapter one and two. Um, and as you read through that together, I want you to focus in on two questions. I want you to look at what John, who's the same author of this gospel, what does he say that Jesus has done for us? And then what responsibilities do we have based on what he's done for us? Right? So we talked about what he did on the cross. We've talked about, um, the responsibilities that we have, but let's see it from a different passage now. Let's look and see what, what John says about Jesus and what he's accomplished for us through the cross in 1 John chapter 1 and 2, and then what specific responsibilities does he give us as believers in response to what Jesus has done for us. So looking back today, we've said the cross is God's declaration that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of all kinds in fulfillment of promises made long ago. And now that he has finished that work, once and for all, he calls us to respond in faith and obedience to him. So let me encourage you to remember the cross is for all nations. It's for the worst sinners. We can trust in Jesus more because the cross fulfills scripture. It's not an accident. It's a fulfillment of God's plan. We can embrace the responsibilities that the cross gives us because we can now say goodbye to everything finished on the cross. We're not bound to the law. We're not bound to sin. We don't have condemnation hanging over our head. We don't have to give in to the fear of death or to Satan. That Jesus has dealt with all those things, setting us free so that we can now take up our cross, follow him on a daily basis, submitted to him in obedience. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you so much that we can gather in uncertain times and still uh, worship you by by reading and studying your word together, um, cherishing the truths that we see here. Uh, God, we're so thankful that, that you use the cross to declare salvific truth to us. God, when we look at this passage, we can see your heart, a heart for the nations, a heart for the worst sinners. Um, you didn't come to save the righteous, you came to save the sinners. And God, we are, we are certainly in that bunch. And, and if we say that we're without sin, we're lying. So God, thank you for, for sending Jesus to, to die on the cross, to save us from our sins, to make salvation possible. No matter how bad we've been, no matter how little time we have left to make up for, God, we're thankful that our salvation does not rest in our performance. Our condemnation does 
we've sinned and we deserve wrath. But God, we're thankful that you worked out a totally different arrangement for our salvation, that it is based on the work of Jesus Christ. God, help us to see the, the fulfillment of scripture in this passage and help it to strengthen our faith when we're tempted to doubt, when we're tempted to wander. God, help us to see that, that our faith is not something that we've simply been taught and grown up with, that it is rooted in historical evidence, that it's an informed faith because we are believing things that have been accomplished in accordance with your promises made long ago. God, help us to embrace the responsibilities that come in light of the cross, that you died for a purpose, and that was to save us for those good works that we were ordained to accomplish before, before the time began. You, you've, you've, you've made us for this purpose. You are recreating us now for this purpose to live in obedience to you. And God, help us to embrace those responsibilities daily. God, help us to put, put aside our own desires, our own wants, our own feelings, Help us to submit to you, pick up our own cross, be willing to die to ourselves. When we carry that cross rejoicing, God, that we no longer are slaves of sin. We're no longer slaves to the law. We don't have condemnation hanging over us. We can approach uncertain times even where death is talked about and we don't have to fear it. And we don't have to fear that that, that Satan has some type of control over us, that you are the king. You're coming back as a king. And we look forward to that day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.